break today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Before we get started today, I want to say thank you to the thousands who stepped up to support WDET during this year's spring fundraiser. Unbelievable, the numbers of people who joined Team DET. And if you didn't pitch in yet, you know, it's never too late to help support the shows you enjoy. Detroit Today, Culture Shift, Morning Edition, all of the shows that you hear here on 101.9 WDET. It only takes a few minutes to make a big difference. Help fund those programs by becoming a new member at WDET.org today. Up first, it's almost like a scene from a movie. A caravan of Central American migrants fleeing violence and poverty in their own home countries. They're headed north toward the Mexican border with the United States. Meanwhile, President Donald Trump says he's going to send the National Guard to meet those migrants at the border, and he's cast them as some kind of invading force. He also now says that DACA, the executive order that allows immigrants brought here illegally as children to avoid deportation. He says that is dead, and he's blaming Democrats for not getting it into law. He's also still pushing for his border wall. Sadly, this is all quite real, and some aspects of this pretend a good deal of danger, both immediate and long term. We want to spend the hour today talking about immigration on these three fronts, and of course, we always want to hear from you. What do you make of the brinksmanship that continues to surround our debates about immigration policy? As always, the number on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, put your comments there, or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work you into the conversation. And we're going to begin that conversation today with Andrew Seeley. He is the president of the Migration Policy Institute, whose latest book, Vanishing Frontiers, The Forces Driving Mexico and the United States Together, will be published by Public Affairs on June 5th, 2018. Andrew Seeley, welcome to Detroit Today. Hey, great to be with you. Yeah. Good to be on WDET. Mm-hmm. Great to have you here in Detroit. Uh, l- let's talk about this idea of using military force along the border. Uh, it- it's one of those things that grabs headlines, grabs a lot of attention, gets people a little anxious, I think. But let's put this in some context. Have we done anything like this before? Have we seen another president decide that, that this is the way to defend our borders? Yeah, we, we've actually, this was done by President Obama, and it was done by President Bush, and now it's going to be done by President Trump. And, and uh, it's not terribly successful any of the times, but they do it because it sounds tough. Um, it, it is something they can do that is under their control, and it sounds like they're getting tough on the border, but it, it, it tends up, ends up being much more expensive and less effective than probably other things that they could be doing that are a little more complicated, um, but would, uh, would be a longer-term solution. Yeah. Uh, this idea of the National Guard going to join uh, Border Patrol on the border, of course, I think the president is responding here to this news of this caravan of migrants, which I guess we're learning this morning may end up disbanding south of Mexico City, which yeah. is not terribly close to the border in the first place. Right. But he's sort of using this in in a narrative sense, I think, to, to again, heighten that sense of uh, urgency, heighten that tension, uh, this idea that somehow there are lots and lots of people who want to sort of flood our borders, cross them, and and live here illegally. 
Yeah, I think this comes in the context, too, of, of President Trump really ran on, on getting a border wall and getting tough on border security, and he hasn't succeeded in, in making that happen. And it didn't come out in the last budget that was negotiated a couple of weeks ago. And, you know, feeling like he has to do something that, that responds to what was really one of his, you know, top two or three promises on the campaign trail. Mm -hmm. And so this at least seems to respond to, if it's not a wall, it's at least sending the military sounds like the, the next best thing. Um, but actually, you know, the reality on the border today is that we, we have fewer people trying to cross the U.S.-Mexico border than than ever before. Um, Mexicans are at the lowest number in 50 years. Mm -hmm. Very few Mexicans try and cross the border anymore. Uh, Central Americans have actually gone up since 2014. They went up in 2014. They kind of dropped back down, but there has been a steady flow. But it's still, you know, Central American countries are smaller and they're further away. So it's a smaller number of people that are trying to cross the border even today. Um, but, the, you know, it, it is still a challenge. There's, there still are questions about how you deal with this. Uh, and, and politicians, you know, on both sides want to avoid some of the tough choices on this. And, and so the National Guard sounds like you've done something really active and, and you punt the, the actual decisions down the, down the way a bit. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what about the, the president's statement on DACA, this idea that it's dead? Now, he said that before. He's also said before that we're really close to a deal. I mean, he's the kind of personality who sort of uh, swings back and forth pretty, pretty easily on these things. Do, but do you believe that, uh, that he's right this time, that, uh, that we're not going to get a deal on DACA and that it might expire? You know, my my guess is we will eventually get a deal on DACA, and, and we'll get it because it is there's enormous sympathy in the U.S. E even beyond where people stand tend to stand on immigration policy, there's enormous sympathy for young people who came here when they were kids and grew up in this country and have never really. Yeah, I, I know one kid who has DACA actually who who came when he was one year old. I mean, he's never been to Mexico. He doesn't know the country at all. You know, there's enormous sympathy with people being allowed to stay here. And, and, and no one really, no one wants to be the politician responsible when there are news stories about people being sent back to a country that they don't know, people yeah. who are working productively that are, you know, valedictorians of their school. We'll probably get there. I, I think this is how Trump negotiates, you know, and whether it's good or bad, others can evaluate, but it, but it is a little bit what we've seen on other issues too, right? He's impulsive uh -huh. as a person, but it's also his negotiating style. Right now he's telling Democrats it's done, and he's hoping that he can exact a bigger price, you know, for Democrats and actually a number of Republicans who've wanted to fix this, um, who are a few of them are close to him, but most are less close to him. And, and he's hoping that they'll come back to him at some point and try and make a deal for the wall and return for DACA. Let's hope he gets more than than he would have last time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, do, do you feel like uh, the, the conversation here is moving in a direction that that is bringing us closer to a deal. I mean, uh, you, you talk about the president as a deal maker. Uh, Democrats have have not been able to figure out, you know, wh what space to occupy to sort of get him uh, to do the things yeah. that, that he wants to do. Is this all sort of going to maybe just fall into place at some point uh, for, for reasons that none of us really, I guess, uh, understand? You know, I uh, and when I say he's a deal maker, you know, I, others can judge whether he's a good deal maker or not, and whether <laughs> right. you know being a deal maker in real estate translates into being a good deal maker in politics, which which is a really different different game. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean that, that there are divided opinions on that one, but I I think it's his negotiating style. I, you know, I think it will come into place in the way the budget did, which is deadlines tend to force uh, 
decisions in politics. And and right now, the deadline on DACA has been extended because the courts have ruled so far, the lower courts have ruled that that the president erred in the way he went about canceling DACA. Mm -hmm. And so they've kept it on life support. It's going to go to the Supreme Court. It'll be heard in the fall. And at some point, if there's a decision that upholds the president, if there's a decision that says he made the wrong decision, then all bets are off because this will go on for a longer. He can go ahead and cancel it again, but you know, yes, it's going to take time. But if, if as, as I think it's probably likely the Supreme Court rules that the president is had the authority to do it and he did it the right way, at some point when that decision comes down, there's a, there's a moment where Congress has to figure out what they're going to do, and the president has to figure out what he's going to do. And I think that's when you're going to see a lot of movement very quickly to solve this. And, and hopefully they're successful. I mean, I, you, know, you can never guarantee that, that they'll reach an agreement, but, but it certainly will be a focusing moment where they'll have to sit down and talk to each other again. Now, this is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and my guest is Andrew Seeley. He's the president of the Migration Policy Institute. He's got a book coming out on June 5th. 2018 called Vanishing Frontiers, the forces driving Mexico and the United States together. We are talking about the confluence of news around the immigration debate right now, the caravan of migrants that was headed north from Central and South America, uh, now is just south of Mexico City, maybe disbanding, but that seems to have provoked President Donald Trump into saying that he will send the National Guard to the border to reinforce the Border Patrol there. At the same time, the president says that DACA, which allows children who were brought here illegally to avoid deportation, he says that's now dead because Democrats could not work with him and Republicans in Congress to get that codified into law. We want to hear from you what you think about all of this news about immigration. Do you think this is bringing us closer to rational immigration reform, or is it pushing us further away? And is there a little danger, I guess, uh, associated with the idea of militarizing the border in the way that the president uh, has proposed? As always, on the phones, 313-577-1019 is the number. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there. Or if you go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, We'll work you into the conversation. Alvin on Facebook says, how do people get upset that our government is stopping undocumented people from coming here? I think the Democrats have people not thinking straight. They are blatantly trying to break our laws. Have we gone insane to think that this is okay? Uh, Andrew Seeley, that, that's a sentiment I hear a lot. And I, th- I think as much as that's uh, a consequence of the things that the president is saying and that re- some Republicans are saying, it's also a, a, a function of what the Democrats have not been able to say or, I guess, convince people of uh, very effectively. This idea that this is about allowing people who uh, don't want to or can't immigrate legally, the idea that it's it's about opening up our borders and just letting people rush in is still, that's still a really powerful narrative in this discussion. Yeah, it is. You know, there used to be a, a phrase that President Bush used, I believe, which was, you know, we're a country of immigrants and a country of laws. You know, and, and mm-hmm. it's how you square those two things, right? We want to be continue to be a country of immigration, but we want people to come through legal channels. Mm-hmm. We've actually been, and, and the real disagreement is, I mean, I, we're living in polarized times, right? So the more that President Trump goes after unauthorized immigrants, 
the more people on the other side, mostly Democrats, but but occasionally a few Republicans and independents, go the other direction and become very, very sympathetic with unauthorized migration. And so, you know, we really have both poles. It, in reality, the question is how much effort do you spend on this, right? And, and people have different, you know, and how much do you think this is a crisis? Mm-hmm. We've been very good. Right now, the number of people crossing the U.S.-Mexico border is, is at a low. It used to be, there used to be 1.5, 1.6 million detentions a year, apprehensions of people crossing the border. We're down to about 300,000. Um, that, and it looks like they're getting most of the people that are crossing. Increasingly, very few people make it through. According to DHS, they're getting between 55 to 85 percent of the people they think are crossing. So we've been very effective. Now, we, we have a bigger problem today, actually, with people overstaying their visas, coming into the United States and overstaying their visas. Coming That's legally. the largest number of people. Right. People coming legally and then overstaying, and then they become unauthorized as they overstay. Um, but the question becomes, how much do you want to invest do you want to get this to zero? Do you, you know, do you, you know, want to put more boots on the ground? We spend more right now on all Im- on our immigration enforcement functions than we do on all other federal law enforcement agencies. So we spend a lot of money on this, and and that's an area where reasonable people can disagree, right? I mean, is this something where you want to get it further, further down? You know, way down. Do you are we okay with the number we have right now, and just know there's going to be some folks getting in? Do you work incrementally to try and get it down? Maybe put more technology at the border, which seems to be the most effective way of actually beginning to identify who's crossing. You know, what what do you do? That's sort of the next step, and and how quickly do you do it? And is it a national security crisis, or is it a humanitarian crisis, and a question of? You know, over time, getting as much control as we can of our borders, and 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 these are things where reasonable people can disagree. And I'm afraid we've lost the the reasonable, the the ability to sit down and have rational conversations about this. Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, three one three five seven seven one zero one nine is always the number on the phones if you want to join the conversation. Let's go to Maurice on the east side of Detroit. Maurice, welcome to Detroit today. Thanks, Stephen. Thanks mm-hmm. for taking my call. Sure. Um, so I have a, I have a, a question. So I'm, I'm hearing a, a, a narrative here that I've heard often in this debate um, around, you know, the, the folks coming in, even, even if it's less coming from Mexico um, and folks coming from Central American countries, it's still a problem. Or the positive tone of saying that we've gotten down from 1.5 million to 300,000. And I'm wondering if this, if this notion of less people from uh, the south of our border coming into this country being a good thing is actually just playing into racist stereotypes Hmm. of what uh, folks who live in Mexico and Central American countries are. Um, And I will take my uh, comments from your guests and answers off the air. Thanks. Yeah. Maurice, thanks very much for for the call and the the question. I think there's a totally fair question to ask. I mean, I think I I, I would take a first uh, run at that by saying I think that's exactly the sort of uh, tension that exists uh, in this debate. I don't think there's anything wrong with saying we want to make sure that people who want to come here uh, and be Americans do so legally, not just because we want to respect the laws of this country, but also to protect them uh, from sure. from the kinds of uh, over-aggressive deportation efforts and things like that. But at the same time, uh, you're absolutely right, Maurice, that, that because of... Uh, the incredible uh, cultural biases that exist still, uh, racism that, that, that exists. Uh, when you say that, uh, sometimes it sounds like you're saying we need fewer people from from places like uh, Mexico and Central and South America. And I think that finding the gap where you can have that discussion uh, and, and not fall 
too far on either side of it is is the trick. But but Andrew Seeley, I'm I'm curious what your reaction is to what Maurice is saying. Yeah, it, it's a complicated question because when we talk about immigration, we're talking about a lot of different things, right? I mean, our, our, you know, the values, people's values come out in multiple ways, right? Mm-hmm. So it's about rule of law. It's about what is this country going to look like in the future. It's about you know being you know honoring our immigrant heritage. I mean, we have lots of narratives that resonate with different people in different ways. Um, but I agree with you. I think I mean the first thing we don't want you know we want people coming into this country, but we want them coming in through legal channels. Um, you know, the question becomes what's our level of tolerance for a few people getting around that? Mm-hmm. You know, and how much do we want to invest to make sure people go through those legal channels? And you know, do we? I mean, yes, we we could invest billions and billions more. We could make it a national priority. Is is that does it make enough difference in our life that we want to do that or not? And I think that's where reasonable people can disagree. But we are going to have whether or not people are coming across the border, whether or not Central Americans continue to come. Um, we are going to have a large number of people coming from Mexico and from Central America through the legal system. Mm-hmm. And we're going to have a larger number of people coming from Asia. I mean, right now, actually, the countries that are um, the largest in terms of the flow coming through our legal system are China, India, and Mexico. Mexico is actually third now. Um, but then you get to a lot of the Central American countries as well. And so we will have a, a very robust number of people coming in from Latin America, no matter what, through our legal system, right. um, regardless of who comes in undocumented. And for Mexicans particularly, I, mean, I should say, Me- Mexicans are at the lowest, you know, the lowest unauthorized rate in 50 years. They're just, Mexicans are not leaving the country at the rate. There are a few people every year, but they're not leaving anything like the rate they did 10 years ago, actually. People, for a variety of reasons, it's becoming an older population. The economy is doing a little bit better gradually. There's more education. Um, it's a little more dangerous to cross the border. Lots of reasons, but Mexicans stop jumping across the border. Yeah. And, and, but they continue to come through the legal system. They come through work visas. They come through family visas. And no matter what we do with our immigration system, that's likely to continue because the ties are really so deep with Mexico. Yeah. You know, we're very, we're very close in a way we only are with Mexico and Canada. And, and indeed, I would imagine that that's some of what uh, you're covering in your upcoming yeah. book, Vanishing Frontiers, the, forcing dri- the forces that are driving Mexico and the United States together. There is this, this sort of transformation taking place by which the two countries really uh, are inseparable in economic terms. Very much so. I mean, our economies are intertwined, the cultures, the, the communities. And my two favorite sort of factoids on this from the past, you know, just from the past few months is, you know, four of the five last winners of the best Oscar, you know, best director Oscar are Mexican, mm-hmm. which is incredible. <laughs> I mean, four of the last five directors who've won the best director at the Academy Awards are Mexican. And the other one is Jeff Lunau, who is the uh, general manager who rebuilt the Houston Astros, the Houston Astros that sort of came out of nowhere and rebuilt and won the World Series, is is actually an American Mexican. He he was actually born and raised in Mexico of American parents, mm-hmm. and he's part of a community of a million, roughly a million Americans who live in Mexico today. Yeah, yeah. Or Molly, was, certainly his family is still in Mexico, so his family is part of that community. He grew up in that community, and he moved back to the states and. And uh, ended up becoming a very successful general manager. Yeah, yeah. There are tons of stories, of course, uh, just like that. Molly on Twitter says, "I thought governors had to request National Guard to be deployed. Is this an infringement on states' rights?" Great question, there, Molly. Andrew, I'll, I'll let you answer that as well. The president can call up the National Guard to deal with border issues, correct? I think the president can call up the National Guard. In this case, it's a little fuzzy what the process looks like. Mm-hmm. They did talk with. Uh, the four state governments yesterday, three of the governors are on record saying Arizona, New Mexico, and, 
and Texas that, that they're supportive of uh, the deployment. Uh, California is thinking about it. Um, but, you know, as, as in many things these days, you know, the, the public policy, how things are done are, is following the, you know, the, the, the Twitter policy. So the president decided he was going to send troops to the border immediately. You know, his, his cabinet members started and his advisors in the White House started to figure out how, how they were going to do this. So it's not clear to me if the federal government is calling up the National Guard or if they are working with the state governors to call up the National Guard. But at least in three of the cases, three out of the four states, it does look like the governors are on board, whichever way they're going to do it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, let's take one more call here. Philip in Royal Oak, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you. Uh, good morning. Mm-hmm. Um, I just had a quick question I was wondering about how uh, our current debate debate in this country and the president's rhetoric is playing in Mexico, especially uh, nearing a, a presidential election there. Right. Um, and then, you know, what would what would our relationship look like if we had a much less tolerant Mexican government? Um, and then uh, second, I, I had a comment. I, I just find it really interesting that we have a free flow of capital between our country and other countries, but we don't have a free flow of labor. And uh, that's just my comment. I'll take uh, your responses off here. Philip, thanks very much uh, for the call and the comments. Andrew Seeley. uh, Well, Philip, we may be about to find out what what happens when we have a less tolerant Mexican government uh on the other side. Uh Um, You know, elections are coming up in July, and and there's a a lot of uh, likelihood that that whoever's elected next, next will be less pro-American and less inclined to to uh, smooth over differences with the Trump administration. So we, we may find out. I, I think it is a, a, an interesting um, – I mean, Mexicans have been surprisingly patient on this. Me, me, the Mexican government has – they stop about half of the Central Americans, a little less than half the Central American migration flow before they get to the U.S. They've mm-hmm. become essentially the first line of defense for the U.S., if, if you consider it a defense issue, on, uh, on people coming into the U.S. and at great deal of cost because this is not popular in Mexico. Mexicans are very sympathetic, having their own history of people leaving the country. They're very sympathetic to Central American migrants. Sure. But the Mexican government decided that it was the price of peace with the, with the Obama administration, actually, and then with the Trump administration, that they needed to be very actively involved in trying to detain and deport the Central Americans as they were crossing, crossing through their country, and so they've been very active on that. I think the risk is if, if you know, the U.S. government beats up on the Mexican government, will that cooperation continue? You know, and, and then if, if it doesn't, then will you have a larger flow of people coming right. in? Will it then become a higher public issue? I think that's the first question. And, and will it blow up some of the economic cooperation also? I mean, in the end, it's been Trump threatening NAFTA, but. I wouldn't be surprised if whoever comes next as president of Mexico also has some questions about integration with the U.S. and may want to blow up some of the things that help us. Yeah, yeah. Okay, Andrew Seeley, president of the Migration Policy Institute, author of the forthcoming book, Vanishing Frontiers, The Forces Driving Mexico and the United States Together. Thanks very much for being here on Detroit Today. Great pleasure to be with you. Up next, we're going to talk with an immigration attorney who took his client's case all the way to the Supreme Court and won. Later in the show, we'll speak with a DACA recipient about how this chaotic immigration debate is affecting her and her family. And don't forget, if you miss any of today's conversation, you don't have to miss out. Just go to iTunes or wherever you download podcasts. Download and subscribe to Detroit Today. Take us with you and listen when you are ready. We'll be right back on Detroit Today.
You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Trump administration's stepped-up deportations of immigrants who've committed crimes has been aggressive to the point of excess. Just ask Juan Esquivel Quintana, who last year challenged his deportation all the way to the United States Supreme Court and won. Joining us now is Michael Carlin, an immigration attorney from Ann Arbor who handled Quintana's case. Mike, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you so much, Stephen, for having me. Yeah. Uh, let's first, before we get to the case uh, of Juan Esquinvel uh, Quintana, let's talk about uh, DACA. And I know as an immigration attorney, uh, this is one of the issues that, that you deal with. I think there are a lot of questions about where DACA stands uh, from a legal standpoint right now, given uh, given the debate that's going on between the president and Congress, given his executive order uh, that that put it on sort of a time limited uh, interim sort of relief. Uh, just just catch us up on where we are with DACA right now. Right. Well, uh, uh, I believe it was on September 5th, 2017, September 5th last year, uh, President Trump announced the the end of DACA, the rescission of, of the DACA program. and But subsequent to that, there have been lawsuits filed in federal district courts uh, uh, challenging that, that uh, uh, end of the program. And uh, there are currently two lawsuits, um, one in uh, a district court in San Francisco and the other in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, in both of those lawsuits, the federal judge has issued um, temporary or preliminary injunctions of President Trump's ending of the program. And so as of today, DACA is still uh, alive um, in, in, in a slightly diminished form uh, to the extent that uh, persons who have never uh, had DACA in the past cannot may, may not now apply for the first time, mm-hmm. but any person who has had DACA in the past may still apply to renew it. Yeah. Yeah. And and this this debate between the president and Congress, of course, is about whether to make the provisions of DACA into into law, which would give it, you know, uh, a sort of permanent status. But if that doesn't succeed, uh, what's what's the likely outcome of that of that program? I mean, it's it's very difficult to, to predict. Um, I know the the previous um, guest on the program was saying that he thinks that there will be some sort of solution. It that may well be. It's just it's very difficult to predict. And I think um, as as your previous guest indicated, the DACA um, DACA kids, as they're often referred to, are the dreamers, are, are very a politically um, attractive group of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think any uh, politicians really want to be in the business of deporting young people, some of whom came here at the age of, you know, six months or a year of age, have known no other country and have been, you know, model citizens and contributing to the United States very well. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, right now it's a, it's, a, it's a battle and President Trump wants that wall. And, uh, you know, he, he's so his latest tweet has indicated that DACA, you know, there's, there's not going not to be any deal with DACA. And I believe at the moment it seems to be the way President Trump is characterizing it as a, a battle with the Democrats, that they're not willing to give anything. And, uh, you know, President Trump saying he, he wants the wall and he's not going to uh, concede anything about DACA unless he gets the funding for the wall. 
Okay, let's talk about Juan Esquivel Quintana, who was your client last year, who challenged his deportation all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. Tell us who he is and what he was accused of doing, what got him deported uh, in the first place. Yeah, so Juan um, is, uh, was born in Mexico. Um, he entered the United States uh, at the age of 12 uh, lawfully uh, with, with a green card through his, his family. He entered uh, uh, with his, his parents and all of them through legal family-based immigration, um, residing in California. And um, when Juan was, was a young man, he, he had a girlfriend, and um, it was in a relationship with her, and uh, he was approximately 20 years old, and his girlfriend was under the age of 18. Um, and uh, he unfortunately ended up getting uh, charged and and pleaded guilty to, uh, or pleaded no contest to, uh, to unlawful intercourse with a minor. Mm-hmm. Uh, in California, the age of consent uh, for what's referred to as statutory rape was 18. Uh, it still is 18. And even though the sexual relationship was completely consensual, there was no force, no coercion whatsoever, um, you know, that, that was a violation of the law in California. Um, in, in California, for, uh, I don't want to go too, too far into the technical legal weeds, but mm-hmm. in California it was not a problem with immigration. But then he moved to Michigan where we're in the Sixth Circuit of uh, uh, Court of Appeals, and the Sixth Circuit had not issued any decisions about, about this kind of issue, and so the, the default is to go back to what the Board of Immigration says, and their position was that this is what's referred to as an aggravated felony under immigration law and would, be, would make him subject to basically automatic deportation. Uh, so he was deported. We appealed to the Board of Immigration Appeals, and uh, they they agreed that it was, you know, an aggravated felony. Um, we appealed to the Sixth Circuit, and we drew a three-judge panel there. We lost by a two-to-one um, decision there, and uh, uh, with uh, the, the fantastic assistance of uh, the, the Stanford uh, uh Supreme Court Clinic and, and at the Stanford University, um, an attorney named Jeff Fisher argued the case at the Supreme Court and uh, was very persuasive and won one uh, by eight to zero. Yeah, uh, the, the, what's interesting about this case, I think, is is that it it sort of uh, it, it invokes the questions about how we deal with legal immigrants, why we why we somehow. Are treating them uh, as as a problem or 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 the enemy, and that, and and that is something that is growing or heightening under the presidency of of Donald Trump. This this attack on legal immigrants as well as uh, those who came here illegally. I would agree with that, Stephen. But I just to be fair, I do want to say that this this case began uh, under the presidency Before, of, right. of yeah President Obama, mm-hmm. um, and so uh, yeah. But but immigration officials have you know, uh, especially in in recent years, and and to be fair, under President Obama as well, mm-hmm. uh, we're we're tough on um, on legal immigrants who uh, who have certain criminal convictions. And there's a, a really interesting area of the law that's developing or has been developing for a while called crimmigration, which is kind of the intersection of criminal law and immigration law. Yes. And it's very interesting and very complex. Um, but, but yeah, I, I do think that sometimes the U.S. government just kind of oversteps and, and takes 
interpretations of criminal law and, and applies it to immigration law in a way that's just not terribly reasonable and, and you know, by a, a Supreme Court decision of eight to zero, including, you know, obviously the, the more the more conservative sure. justices were all on agreement. Um, and, and it's eight to zero because Justice Gorsuch was not yet uh, seated, so there, it was a vacancy, so that's why it was eight to zero. But, yeah, I mean, um, sometimes, you know, um, it's important to try to just fight the federal government when they're being overly zealous on... on uh, on, on deportation as, as it refers to, to sure. criminal convictions. Yeah. And this is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. My guest is Michael Carlin. He's an immigration attorney based in Ann Arbor. He handled the Juan Esquivel-Quintana case uh, that you heard a lot about last year here on WDET from WDET Sandra Swoboda, who followed that case pretty closely as it went to the U.S. Supreme Court. We're talking about immigration, immigration policy, immigration law in the United States and how it's playing out under the Trump administration, how it's changing under the Trump administration and the things uh, that are sort of the narrative tensions around the idea of uh, of immigration legal and illegal here in the United States. If you want to join the conversation, uh, give us a call. Uh, tell us what you think about uh, aggressive moves against legal immigrants who may have committed crimes in their past. Tell us what you think about the discussion about DACA, uh, the Dreamer Act, which uh, is not being passed by Congress. And President Trump now says it's going to be dead and that uh, we won't get a deal on that. What do you think uh, about him saying that? What do you think is the likelihood of that coming to pass in Washington, that we won't get a permanent deal to protect those who were brought here as children uh, illegally. Also, tell us what you think of the idea of the president sending the National Guard down to the border with Mexico, a move that other presidents have also made, but he's doing it in the context of the caravan of migrants who were moving toward the U.S. border. 313-577-1019 is always the number on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there uh, or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today and we'll work you into the conversation. A little later in the program, we're going to talk to a dreamer, a student at the University of Michigan who uh, was brought here when she was six. Uh, we also want to hear, though, from other folks who fall into that category. You're someone who was brought here illegally uh, as a child and depend on uh, DACA to protect you from deportation. What does all of this news say to you? What kind of uh, fear, perhaps, does that uh, inspire uh, in your daily life? The idea of the uncertainty that surrounds DACA. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Michael, I'm curious what you're hearing from your clients about the news that unfolds each day now around this issue. Uh, is there is there a sort of a palpable anxiety around uh, how all of these questions will be resolved? You, you know, there truly is. Um, I, I feel sometimes like a bit of an emergency room doctor uh, just dealing with the, 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 the newest uh, crisis of the day in the immigration world. Um, I, I believe that President Trump has, has succeeded uh, in creating, uh, yes, a palpable sense of, of fear and terror among uh, 
the immigrant community in, in, in general. Um, shortly after President Trump uh, was elected office, I, I got a, a phone call from a, a young woman for whom I had um, helped to, to get a green card to become a permanent resident, and she was so upset because she felt like she was going to be deported. And I, I told her, ma'am, really, you don't have anything to worry about. Um, but, but it's just, it was... It, it really saddened me because it just felt um, that the message that was getting through, whether or not it was accurate or not, the message is that people from other countries are just not welcome. And mm-hmm. I think that um, and that coupled with a really strong uptick in enforcement um, and, and arrest and detention of, of non-citizens in the United States has, has created lots of fear. Um, I know that... Um, the Trump administration is in the process of, of uh, increasing the number of prison beds available throughout the country for, uh, for, for uh, you know, uh, to, to place people in detention while their cases are pending. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it is, uh, yeah, it, it is a, a tense time. What's their sense of where we're headed? Do they, do they feel any sort of optimism about the, the, the negotiations that are taking place? Do they feel... Uh, as though you, you mentioned, uh, as as did our first guest, uh, the idea of the sympathy that the American public seems to have, for instance, for for people who are who are dreamers, uh, do they feel like this will resolve itself in a way <clears throat> that will be beneficial to them, or uh, are they fearful that we're headed toward a, a darker time? You know. I- I, I think all of us are just we're just holding our breath and, and waiting. I, I don't know. Um, I I think I think we're all uh, in a kind of a crouch mode and, and a feeling of uh, you know we're doing what we can at the moment to, to help whoever we can. But I, I don't know. Um, I, I do get the sense. I, I get a sense that that you know my my clients who have DACA, you know, the Dreamers. I think they they generally feel a little bit. Um, a little, a slightly more comfortable than than many other people because mm-hmm. of the protection that they have. Although they understand that it, it could be yanked away at any moment, it, it also just happens to be that many many dreamers, many DACA kids, um, have other connections to the United States. Maybe some of them are marrying U.S. citizens or have other avenues to become permanent residents. So I've had a number of clients who have had DACA and who because of a marriage to U.S. citizen or what have you, are able to obtain permanent residence status. And so many, many of those people uh, would have those other options, although, of course, many also do not. But right. um, it's, it, yeah, it, it's hard to tell. I, I mean, I do think that the DACA kids, to a certain extent, understand that they're, they're a politically... Um, positive group and and but but you know nobody knows how yeah. it's going to play out sure again 313-577-1019 is always the numbers on the phone uh let's go to dan in east lansing dan welcome to detroit today hey Stephen, thanks for having me on sure um so i was just wondering uh, we keep referring to doc recipients as those uh, those that were brought here as children mm-hmm. i was wondering you know, I guess where is the cutoff? How how what's the extent to which these recipients are adults, and what's the how many of them are you know children still being brought here? Right. Uh, great question, Dan. Uh, thanks very much for 
the call, Michael Carlin, uh, talk about the way in which uh, the law handles that, that question. Who is eligible uh, for, for DACA? And are there still people who are arriving, I guess, in the United States as children uh, with their parents who've brought them here illegally? Oh, yeah, it's a great question. Uh, and and to, to answer it squarely, um, the only people who are eligible at, at this time who are eligible for DACA, uh, well, again, at this point, are only people who have had DACA in the past. But even you know, from the very day that President Obama announced it, the requ- one of the requirements is that a person had to have lived continuously in the United States since June 15th of 2007 mm-hmm. up to the present. And so that is a cutoff. If you arrived one day after, if you arrived June 16th of 2007 or later, you're not eligible for DACA. Uh, you also have to have entered the U.S. before you turned age 16. You had to have been born after June 15th of 1981. So if you don't meet, if, if you, if you don't meet any of those requirements, you're, you're just not eligible in the first place. Mm-hmm. So that is definitely a Anybody who's arriving today, for sure, would not be eligible. In fact, you know, at this point, you, you had to have been here since 2007. My goodness, that was, what, 11 years ago? 11 years ago, right. Yeah. Do, do you get the sense, though, that that's still an issue in some communities, people arriving here uh, with children, uh, sort of re reestablishing that potential problem that uh, they'll face later as they're teenagers and adults? I think if you're wondering if if people are continuing to come to the U.S. into the mistaken conception that they will be able to figure something out or Mm -hmm. or get DACA or something, I I don't know. Um, I don't know the answer to that question. But, you know, if if it's possible, I don't know. I don't want to shift the conversation too much. But Mm -hmm. if we could extend the conversation slightly, you know, certainly some of the people uh, who are on our southern border uh, entering the United States without visas, without documents, are, are, are really fighting for their lives. They're, mm-hmm. they're asylum seekers. They're people who are facing serious troubles in their home country, yes. persecution from the government or from groups that the government cannot control. And, uh, you know, the United States is, is a signatory to the United Nations, uh, you know, policies on, on asylum, and uh, we need to uphold that. We need to have asylum as a, as a real option for people who have valid claims. Yeah. Yeah. And we're not uh, I mean, that's very a very difficult process for people. I mean, if you are fleeing a country uh, because of violence or the threat of violence and uh, or political persecution and coming to the United States, I know it is very difficult to, to get our government to, to grant you that that asylum. It absolutely is. And I mean, we fight those out in the um, asylum offices in the United States and in the immigration courts. And I uh, will tell you from personal experience, it is not easy to get asylum. Uh, it, your case is looked at extremely thoroughly and carefully. And, you know, you need to show proof of what the problem is. And, and I found that many cases that I think are meritorious are denied. So, yeah, it is not an easy thing. But we have to keep the door open for people who are who have genuine fear for their lives uh, based on 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 uh, certain certain factors that that make them eligible for asylum. Yeah. Okay, Michael Carlin, immigration attorney based in Ann Arbor. Thanks very much for joining us on Detroit today. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Up next we're going to hear from a DACA recipient and get her reaction to all of this immigration news. Stay with us on Detroit today.
You're listening to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Six months ago, we heard from a young DACA recipient who was a junior at the University of Michigan. Brenda was born in Mexico, but moved here when she was six, and she has not been back to Mexico since then. When we last talked to her, President Trump had just signed his executive order calling for an end to DACA and asking Congress to step up with immigration reform that would include both a plan for DREAMers and funding for the border wall. Back then, Brenda said she was not surprised by Trump's action. But she said the insecurity around her future was making focusing on school a lot more difficult. How is she feeling now, six months later, with no clear plan in sight for the children of immigrants raised in America? Brenda joins us now. Welcome to Detroit Today. Oh, hi, Dan. Hello. Yes. Uh, it's good to hear your voice again. I understand you're a little under the weather, so uh, yeah. <laughs> I'll try to make this somewhat uh, somewhat quick. But But talk about what the last six months have been like, uh, this sort of limbo that has existed? Um, it has definitely been harder for me. Um, I have kind of just taken upon myself to just keep working a lot to mm-hmm. finish and graduate soon. So I'm actually taking spring and summer classes, hoping that if nothing is done over the summer, I'm able to graduate before DACA, my DACA expires. And and if you are able to graduate, what will that uh, what will that allow you to do? So if I'm able to graduate, I'm hoping to get offered a job and get my visa through my through a work. Um, but even that is really not a clear path mm-hmm. because I've gone to a couple career fairs, I've met a couple of employers, and they don't know how to handle DACA. They don't know what. You know, the uncertainty of it, you don't know what to do if I graduate before then and if I get offered a job offer, if they're able to employ me legally. It presents a a real challenge to to employers to figure out how how to make that work. Yeah. And I mean, besides even just graduating early so I can do that, um, my ability to you know, just support myself because I won't have a work permit in the fall. Right. So graduating early allows me to still be able to support myself without thinking about pay tuition and rent and everything else. Right, right. Uh, I, I can't imagine at your age sort of juggling all of those things. I mean, everybody reaches the point in college where they have to think about what's next, but the idea that what's next is influenced by this thing you have no control over and that has a, a real effect on on your life i just uh it's hard for me to imagine uh how stressful that is what what, what kind of feedback uh are you getting support or criticism from other people at the university who 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 know about uh, your status and and these questions I think um, the University of Michigan has done a really good job at um, creating a support system in general for students who are DACA recipients. Um, there is a support network. There is financial aid office who keeps us who keeps us updated about how the policies will change and how it will affect us. Mm-hmm. But I think that in terms of knowing that the university has your back is a good thing. Mm-hmm. But socially. 
and then just thinking about the future is still a lot of stress. Um, I know that it's been a few rough few months for me, mm-hmm. just dealing with my mental health problems and knowing knowing that this is an ongoing stress that I have no control over. So, right. Um, are you friends with other students there who are who are dreamers? I'm I'm curious. Uh, uh, if, yes. Uh, what uh, What's the conversation like uh, that you have with them about this issue? Um, a lot of them are just hopeful. They They just think this is a bad, you know, like bad weather or pass by. And um, they're just hopeful something will come around, or they 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 don't they don't they don't they understand that. They don't just continue. Like a lot of them are not, are thinking that I'm slightly crazy for just taking strange uh, classes to finish early, mm-hmm. but they think that um, it's just, just a bad weather, you know, and things will be better. And uh, if they're if they can't pay for tuition, then they'll just oh and have that, and you know. I don't know. A lot of them are not thinking about it as much. Sure, sure. Okay, Brenda, who is a junior at the University of Michigan, as always, thanks for joining us here on Detroit Today, and we continue to wish you well uh, mm-hmm. in figuring out how this uh, how this issue will get resolved. Thank you, Dan. Mm-hmm. All right, that's going to do it for us today. I will be back tomorrow. I hope you will, too. Detroit Today is produced by Laura Weber-Davis and Jake Neer. Our program director is Joan Isabella. The technical director and engineer is Matthew Trevethan. And our associate producers are Gus Navarro and Ziad Butch. Detroit Today's theme song was composed by WDET's Sam Bobby. And remember, if you missed any of today's show, you don't have to miss out entirely. You can hear it and all other past editions of Detroit Today on the Detroit Today podcast. Just go to iTunes or wherever podcasts are available. Download and subscribe to Detroit Today. Take us with you. Listen when you are ready. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's public radio station, a community service of Wayne State University. We'll see you tomorrow.